If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Dave could see what was happening from the rear type, and he reckoned that the water spout went up to about a thousand feet. And he said, and that's not all. In the, the downflow, some of the water came into the turret. I thought I was going to be bloody drowned. This was not drowned by you lot. That was Johnny Johnson, Britain's last dam buster, recalling the night of the iconic raid. What was interesting is that when we said to, to some of the locals, you know, are you surprised that we found loads of bodies on this beach? No, they weren't surprised at all. There are there local stories associated of ghosts on that beach. And that was Sam Willis on some grisly archaeology discoveries in Antigua. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine, you can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of all our digital formats, please head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. On the 17th of May 1943, 133 aircrew set off on the now legendary Dambusters raid. 70 years later, just three participants of the raid survive, and only one of them, George Johnny Johnson, lives in Britain today. So for me, it was a great honour to visit Johnny at his home close to Bristol and have the opportunity to hear about his wartime experiences. Johnny volunteered to join the RAF in the summer of 1940 while still a teenager. He went to the United States to be trained as a pilot, but unfortunately didn't quite make the grade. He returned to the UK early in 1942, still determined to be involved in the air war, and so he trained as a gunner. After several raids, he retrained again, this time as a bomb aimer, and it was in this capacity that he would play his part in the Dambusters raid. He first served as a bomb aimer in 97 Squadron, and it was here that he encountered the American pilot Joe McCarthy. And then I was told I was going to join this crew with an American captain. I thought, oh my God, bloody Americans again. But when we met, he was, I discovered, one flight lieutenant, Joe McCarthy. He was six foot three and as broad almost as, as he was tall. Big in height, big in personality, but by the grace of God, big in pilotability too. Mm. Perfect. A great pilot, he really was. And it just happened that from the time we met, we just seemed to gel. And it stayed like that throughout the whole of the time that I was flying with him and extended into post-war friendship. I never at any time 
had anything but confidence in that he would bring us back from wherever we were going. I never felt that I wasn't going to come back throughout the whole of that time. In early 1943, Wing Commander Guy Gibson asked to Joe McCarthy if he and his crew would join a special squadron that he was putting together. It was an exciting opportunity for Johnny, but also nearly scuppered his wedding. The score at that stage was that after a first tour of 30 trips, you got a week's leave, and then you went on to either a ground tour or, or a non-operational flying tour until you were wanted back on ops again. Well, since anticipation of this leave, my fiancé and I had arranged to get married on the 3rd of April. And before that happened, Gibson rang Joe, and Joe McGarvey, who was my skipper, and said, would he be prepared to join this special squadron that he was forming for one special trip, just the one special trip? And Joe said, I'll, I'll have to ask my crew. If he did, we said, yes, we'd go with him. So I wrote to Grin and said, we were going to this new squadron for just one trip. Don't worry, I'll be there. And I got a letter back which said, if you're not there on the 3rd of April, don't bother. That's the first mandate issued. We went up to, up to Scampton on the 27th of March, as I recall. And one of the first things we heard when we got there was no leave. Oh, God, now I'm in real trouble. Joe took us up to Gibson's office as a crew. And his inimitable American style said, we've just finished our first tour. We're entitled to a week's leave. My bomber was supposed to be getting married on the 3rd of April, and he's going to get married on the 3rd of April. We got our leave, and I got my wedding. But I thought, a flight attendant to talk to Gibson like that and get away with it was something. But then I, 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 I gathered that they had met before, sometime before, and Joe and Gibson had been quite impressed with Joe, which is why he asked him if he joined the squadron. So I got my wedding, and that, that was that. At this stage, the crew still weren't fully aware of what the operation would entail, but the nature of the training suggested it would be very different to the kind of raids that Johnny had been on before. Probably the most interesting thing was that he was going to be low-flying, and low-flying meant 100 feet. Well, having spent the last 30 missions at 10, 12, 15,000 feet, if you're lucky, above cloud and in the darkness, where was Darry? our bombings in Heart of Moon, and uh, see nothing until you got within target range. Then you saw all the guns that you've got to go through before you got back. What a change to be told that you're going to be flying at 100 feet. Now, in the bomb moments compartment, which I had was the, the most comfortable, comfortable compartment in the aircraft, I had the, the cushions to lie, to lie down on in the first place and the, the, sh the shoulder cushion to, to rest on. Lying there, Watching the, the ground just going flashing past was absolutely exhilarating, it really was. And one thing that worried me a little bit was that one of our routes was over the Spalding Tulips field. And as we flew over, the poor old tulips just went plop straight over. There must have been a, a hell of a lot of compensation claimed on that, because knowing Lincolnshire farmers, they wouldn't allow that sort of loss without making some considerable claim for it. One thing that was made very clear to the crews was that security on this raid would be stringently enforced. The other thing that was stressed was the question of security. Letters were censored, and even the public telephone box outside the station was monitored. And there was one particular evening meeting when Gibson really tore a young Canadian pilot officer to pieces because he'd run his girlfriend in Lincoln the night before 
and said, sorry, he couldn't make it. We'd got something wrong. That was sufficient for Gibson, breach of, of um, security. We were left in no doubt about what security was about. The training continued and Johnny and the crew learned to adapt to the unusual methods to be used on this raid. The next thing was the arrival of the special aircraft. He had no, no mid-up turret and it looked as though the bomb bay was sealed and it had these two arms sticking down in, in the front. One of them had a, a belled wheel on the end. And then the bomb arrived and it just looked like a glorified dustbin. Black, cylindrical, bloody great thing. And it became obvious what these arms were for. They were going to pivot on that bomb and hold it. And the wheel on the, the pin, the leg, built connected to a small engine within the bombay itself. So we tried to fly in these particular aircraft without the bomb on the course. And we had no navigational aids as such because at that light, G was inoperative. So it was all map reading. And then the navigator and the bomber each had a map with the route marked, marked on. Some crews cut their maps just to the, to the width of the, the route itself just and put it on a roller and under it as they went along. But uh, our navigator certainly you know, didn't think you know, that was a good idea because if by any chance we got badly off track, we wouldn't know the, where the hell we were or how to find ourselves. So we stuck with our whole map with just the, the track marked on. And he would suggest what we might be seeing. I would look for it. If I found it, I'd tell him what, where it was. If not, I'd say, no, it wasn't there, but I'd find something that was. And so he could plot that and adjust his course accordingly. And we, that was the way we did our, our navigation. The other thing that had happened was that bomb aimers had to make their own bomb sites. And this consisted of a triangle of plywood with a pin in each, or a peg, in each of the corners. But the distance between the two base corners had to be specific, and the distance from the base to the apex pin had to be specific. Why? God only knows, because we, we had no idea what the target was going to be. And they, on, on our bombing range, instead of the normal bombing target, two poles were erected, and they again were a specific distance apart. And the briefing was that you held the single pin to your eye and you directed the aircraft until the base pins were in line with those two poles. Then you released your practice bombs. It was basically a ranging device rather than a, a sighting device. Johnny's crew took part in several practice raids on dams in Britain, some of them in simulated nighttime conditions. But it wasn't until the operation was almost upon them that Johnny and the others discovered exactly what the targets were and about how the bouncing bombs would operate. On the Saturday evening of the 15th, Barnes Wallace showed us the film of his development of the bouncing bomb, what had gone through it, how he'd, how he'd developed it. And at that stage, the detailed dropping conditions were mentioned. It had to be revolved backwards at 500 revelations a minute. It had to be dropped from 60 feet at a speed of 220 knots. Under those conditions, it would bounce across the water until it just rested against the dam, then rolled down the dam and exploded at a depth, I'm sure I was briefed, a depth of 25 feet. Most of the books, books go 30 feet. 
but however, whatever. But you're also told that it had two depth fuses set at the same height, but it also had a self-destruct fuse. So that if you had to jettison it anywhere other than over the water, it would explode and the Germans wouldn't have a copy of it. So that was that. So that started the conjecture about what the target might be. And of course, the popular choice was the German battleships, noticeably, notably the, the Tirpitz. About three o'clock on the, on the following day, Sunday, Tamlin message, all 617s aircrew to the operations room. And there we learned what the target was to be. How wrong can you be? When we went into the ops room, there were two models there. One of the Mohan Dam, one of the Zorpa Dam. The one of the Ada hadn't been completed, so it couldn't be there. At that particular briefing, the AOC was there. The station commander was there. Gibson, of course, was there. Barnes Wallace was there. So were all the specialist officers, engineering, armament, and even dear, dear old Met Officer, hoping he was going to give the right sort of forecast. Gibson did the briefing. There was a map on the walls, which showed two routes out and one route back to three, the three dams. The two, there were two routes out. The first route out was going on the southern route. Second route, the second group would go the northern route route, the impression being given to the Germans that a bigger attack was being made somewhere. The briefing was that Gibson would take off with two other aircraft and they would head for the Moen Dam. They would be followed by another six who would go to the Moen Dam. If they were needed there, they would be used on the Moen Dam. If not, they would go on to the Asia Dam. The next five aircraft, in fact they were the second wave were going on the northern route, and they were going to the Zorpa Dam. The Zorpa was very different from the other two. A, it had no towers. B, it was so placed in the hills that it, you couldn't make a head-on attack to it. Not only that, but it was totally different construction. It had a central concrete core, and it was banked on either side with a tremendous covering of to earth shingle quite a, a distance away from the central central column and then it was concrete again along the outside and because of its position and lack of towers we couldn't make that sort of attack and so it had to be we were briefed we had to fly with the port outer engine over the dam itself and fly along the dam and estimate to drop the bomb, inert drum, you weren't spinning it at all, estimate to drop it as near as possible to the centre of the dam. No sighting device as such, basically, by guess and by God, trying to get as close as you could. Just prior to the raid, Johnny recalls how some of the other aircrew took a pessimistic view of their own chances of survival. I'm aware that there were one or two crews who felt they weren't going to come back. One of those was Hobby Hopwood, who was a very active member of the squadron. And uh, he said to Dave Shannon, as they were going out to the aircraft, look Dave, I've written a letter, left in my room. He said, I have a feeling I'm not coming back. If I don't come back, will you please get the letter and destroy it? I don't want them to get it first. 
he didn't come back. He was actually shot up making his attack on the moon and he burst into flames as he was shot up and crashed. On the 17th of May 1943, 617 Squadron set off on Operation Chastise. As they prepared to depart, Johnny's crew discovered they had a problem with their aircraft. We got out our aircraft. Two Queen had been our aircraft for training and uh, it behaved perfectly throughout the, the training. But it decided it didn't want to go that line. And so it developed a hydraulic leak, which couldn't be fixed at the time. There was only one reserve aircraft. It had only arrived on the station at three o'clock that afternoon. It had been, it had been bombed up, filled up, and it had done a compass swing with the bomb on. So when our, we, our aircraft wasn't going, Joe said, for Christ's sake, get that reserve aircraft quickly before some, some other bug, bug gets there and we, we don't get a chance to go. So off we shot. And in his, his rush, Joe caught his parachute handle and pulled his parachute. So he was wallowing, waffling behind him all the way out to the, the reserve aircraft. There was a truck there. Navigator got in and says, the compass car's not here. And Joe was really furious by now. So he got into the truck and drove back to the flight. Fortunately, the squadron manager was there, Humphrey's great character. And Joe was in an absolute rage. He said, for Christ's sake, Joe, calm down. If you don't calm down, we'll bugger the whole thing up. He managed to get him to calm down a bit. And the, the squadron, squadron deceit, flight sergeant Powell, Chiefy Powell, shot across the flights and collected the um, compass card. But he heard Joe say that he wasn't going to bother with the parachute. And so he went off to the parachute section, came back with another parachute and said, put it in the trunk and said, your parachute, sir. <laughs> so that was that. Eventually the crew took off and flew towards their target, the Zorpa Dam. On their way to the dam, they had an encounter with a German train. We were flying just south of Ham and this train was coming along at, at a goods train coming along at right angles to our track. And because we had no mid-upper turret, the mid-upper gunner was flying in the front turret and they fitted stirrups so he wasn't constantly kicking me in the back. But um, when he saw this, this goods train, he said, can I have a go, Joe? And I think I'm convinced almost, almost reluctantly. Joe said, well, yeah, all right. So Ron, Ron opened up with his little 303s at this goods train. Of course, what we didn't know was that it wasn't just a good train, it was an armoured goods train, and it replied with rather more than 303s. We knew we'd been hit because we heard it and we felt it, but it didn't seem to impede the aircraft at all, so we just pressed on. After surviving that close shave, Johnny's crew approached their target, the Zorpa Dam. We eventually found Zorpa. It was a bit difficult to find in the end because it was becoming quite misty in the area. But over the dam itself, it was perfectly clear, brilliant moonlight. And one thing we noticed when we got there that we hadn't either noticed on the model or hadn't been mentioned at briefing was that there's a church steeple on the side of the hill from which we had to make the attack. So how the hell did we get a, around that? A bit dotty wing up just to get over the top and so on, but Joe decided to use it as a marker and go straight down from there. And it wasn't very easy. Oh, what I should have said, because we weren't spinning the bomb, none of the dropping conditions applied. It didn't matter about the height or the speed. So the idea, as I say, was to get the, the, the aircraft down with the full tension over the dam itself 
which meant that the bomb was on the water side of the dam and then aimed to drop it as near as you could to the, to the centre of the dam. Not an easy manoeuvre and one of course which we hadn't practised before at all. So the first were obviously practised ones had to be. If I wasn't satisfied, I called Dummy Run. If Joe wasn't satisfied, he just pulled away and left me to call Dummy Run. I discovered how to become the most unpopular member of the crew in double quick time. Our uh, squadron humorist was, was Dave Roger in the rear corridor, a Canadian. And after the, the sixth or seventh dummy run, voice from the rear track, won't somebody get that bum out of here? However, nothing had been said between Joe and myself. But I'm sure, sure we both realised that the lower we got, the less forward travel that bomb was going to have before it hit the water. And again, the lower we got, the easier it would be to estimate a reasonably accurate bombing uh, dropping point. So on the tenth run, we were down to 30 feet and I dropped the bomb. When I said bomb gun, thank Christ came from the rear turret. So we, we, we circled around and had another look. I didn't see what happened on the explosion because as soon as I said bomb gun, of course it was those up before we hit the hills on the other side, which wouldn't have been a, a, a very good idea. And again, Dave could see what was happening from the rear turret. And he reckoned that the water spout went up to about a thousand feet. And he said, and that's not all. In the, the downflow, some of the water came into the turret. I thought I was going to be bloody drowned as well as not drowned by you lot. Eventually, Joe was quite happy with what little success we'd had. Barnes Wallace had said, he estimated that it would take at least six bombs to crack that dam. He said, if you can crack it, the water pressure will do the rest. And seeing the amount of water that was in that dam, that wasn't surprising. What we couldn't understand was that when we got there, none of the other five aircraft were there, and none of them arrived whilst we were there. But having circled for a while, Dave said to Joe, for Christ's sake, get down at this height. We're sitting up for any fighters they care to send down. So we went down and set course for home. Flying back from the Zorpa, Johnny flew over what had once been the Mern Dam. It was just like an inland sea. There was water everywhere. We knew, of course, it had been, been breached because we'd heard the broadcast, or the broadcast. And we also knew that the Ada had been breached through the same source. But the water was still coming out of that dam, and that must have been perhaps 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, since the dam had been breached. But it really was. It was actually a very satisfying sight, from our point of view, to see at least what had been achieved even though we may not have been able to achieve the same thing at the Zorpa. Johnny's crew arrived back in Britain safely, but found that landing was trickier than they had anticipated. Scanton at that stage was still a grass airfield, so landings were always a bit rough. But ours was rather rougher than rough, and we would start, start with doing low. The engineer, looking out of the, the perspex, said, we've got a, a burst tyre skipper. So very carefully, Joe taxied it around. We ultimately discovered that the shot that we'd felt had gone through the starboard undercarriage, had burst the tyre en route, had gone through the wing of the aircraft and had lodged in the roof just above the navigator's head. How lucky can you get? 
another matter, certainly little feet, maybe inches, and it would have been into the petrol tank, and that would have been bye-bye McCarthy's crew. After landing, the crew were debriefed, and there they found out more about what had happened to some of the other crews on the raid. Then we discovered why we were the only one, five, that had been to Zorba. Les Monroe had been so badly shot up going over the islands on the way in that not only had the aircraft suffered da- damage, sorry, but amongst the aircraft, damage that had been suffered. The whole of his communication system, internal and external, had been wiped out. And since this was primarily a communications exercise, he had to, virtually by passing notes to each other, say, sorry lads, we'll have to go back. So they came back. Jeff Rice, flying low over the Zyder Sea to avoid flag, admitted subsequently that he was fool enough not to watch his altimeter. And he got so low, he got the bomb in the water and ripped it off the aircraft. And he went back under the aircraft, didn't do the aircraft any good at all, and amongst other things, ripped off the tailwheel and overturned the ends at the end of the back of the aircraft. And the contents of that flowed into the rear gunner's turret. He wasn't very pleased about that either. The Elson, I should have said, he wasn't very pleased about that. However, they both got home. Jeff was coming in on his, his approach, and he saw this other aircraft going in underneath him, just ahead of him. Christ, what's happening here? So he had to stagger around again. And the other aircraft, of course, was was Les Monroe. He had no means of communicating with the uh, tower, so he just had to go in. And he'd he'd still got a bomb on. He shouldn't have had, but he he still kept it. And he he landed, and uh, Jeff eventually landed behind him. The other two, one had been shot down, and the other one had hit electric cables and crashed into the field just ahead. And the bomb had come off and rolled down the hill, but it didn't explode. And the only reason I could think of for that was at that stage, the bomber hadn't fused the bombs. And fusing was done from the bomber's panel. And the normal practice was to fuse bombs on crossing the enemy coast. He obviously was waiting until he got close to the target before he went to drop his bomb. I suppose the tragedy of the night was that of the 19 aircraft that took off, two had to abort, which meant 17 had gone on target while bound. Of those 17, eight were lost. That was nearly a 50% loss. Of those eight crews, only two members actually survived. The third one died after escape. 53 air crew lost that night, which was very, very difficult to to take. Barnes Wallace actually cried. He said, I have killed all those young men. And Gibson tried to pacify him a little bit. He said, no, Barnes, you didn't kill them. Without you, that raid could never have taken place, and what has been achieved could never have been achieved. He said, whenever we took off on any of these raids, we always knew there was a chance that we wouldn't be coming back. We had that feeling 
It's not all of us had that feeling tonight. And some of us just weren't lucky enough. That, and it's to pacify him, Barnes Royce a little bit. But his daughter, Mary, could tell me that he lived with it right up until the time he died. I asked Johnny what the mood was like after the completion of the raid. I would describe it as emotional satisfaction. Satisfaction because of what had been achieved. Emotional because of the losses that um, it had caused. Because, of course, it was many people, some of their closest friends amongst those that were dead. The Dambusters raid struck a big blow against Nazi Germany, killing 1,300 people, creating severe floods and hampering German war production. But to Johnny and the other participants, the magnitude of the operation wasn't immediately apparent. I don't think we realised how important it was until perhaps the next morning when we saw the, the paper headlines. Christ, did we do that? That sort of reaction. I'm sure we were all gratified at the result and some of the problems which it had caused to Hitler. I have a pet hate, and you have to excuse this. It's what I call retrospective historians, because after the war, there were a few of them who insisted that the damage raid should never have taken place. It didn't achieve anything. It cost far too much money. It cost far too many lives. And it detracted aircraft from the bomber offensive. I used to say, as a young man, if I ever met one of those people, I'd hope my hands were tied behind my back because I wouldn't be quite sure what I'd do with them. But I'd just ask them two questions. Were you there? Were you personally aware of the conditions and the, the factors at that time? The answer to both those questions is no. So keep your bloody mouth shut. And my own reaction to the raid itself I think there are at least four good reasons why it was a success. And the first is that it proved to Hitler and the German hierarchy that what they thought was impregnable could be breached, destroyed by the RAF. Second is, although it didn't delay the armament production as much as we would like to have done, it did delay it by some degree. Thirdly, it meant that the skilled workmen who were busy working on other war projects, notably the Atlantic War against invasion, had to be brought back to repair the dams. And I think fourthly, probably more importantly, the moral effect it had on the people of this country was absolutely, absolutely uplifting. That combined with the recent Alamein success, at least gave an indication that perhaps the war could be won, that we were winning in some places. And it gave a, a big uplift, I'm sure, to the morale of the, the, uh, yeah. the British people. One reason why the Dambusters continue to fascinate us today is a classic 1955 film of the raid, I was keen to ask Johnny what he thought about the dramatised version of the events. It was pretty good. And I, th I have to say that I think Michael Redgrave's portrayal of Barnes Wallace was absolutely superb. I think the, the raid itself was, was pretty accurate. 
my disappointment was it made little or no mention of the Zorpadam at all. But then I have to accept that the, the, the purpose of the film, basically, was to demonstrate the bouncing bomb and the actual breaching of the dams. Since we achieved neither of those things, it wasn't part and parcel of the film. After the Dambusters raid, Johnny was one of 34 members of the operation who visited Buckingham Palace to receive an award. In his case, the Distinguished Flying Medal. He continued to take part in bombing raids with his crew until April 1944, by which time his wife Gwyn was expecting their first child. Joe pulled me aside one day in April and he said, Johnny, Gwyn must be worried stiff about whether this child's ever going to have a father or whether she's going to have a husband. You've got to give her a break. Pack it up now. He made me realise that I had other responsibilities besides fighting the war. And much as I didn't want to leave the crew, I realised that what he was saying was right. So I left the crew. After the war, Johnny continued to work with the RAF until the early 1960s, before becoming a teacher in later life. He remained in contact with several other members of the raid, in particular his pilot Joe McCarthy, who died in 1998. Nowadays, as Britain's last ambuster, Johnny finds himself talking about the raid on quite a regular basis. In recent years, he has been interviewed by both Peter Jackson and Stephen Fry as part of their research for a remake of the Dambusters film. In the remake, he's been assured the Zorpa raid will feature more prominently than in the 1955 version. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A few years ago, Johnny's achievements were recognised with an invitation to Windsor Castle and an audience with the Queen, together with Johnny's son Morgan. For Johnny, it was an unforgettable experience. She was standing in the room when we got there. And she put me at ease straight away. And I thanked her for the, the honour and the privilege of the audience. 
And uh, she said, look, let, let's sit down. And she got some chairs arranged around there. She sat in an armchair rather like this. I sat in the one next to her. And Morgan sat on my left. The other two sat just across the way. And she said, I've heard something about you, but I'd rather like to hear it from yourself. So I started to talk. I was amazed how easy it was to talk to her without gasping and without feeling agitated in any way. She just sat there and listened, intercepted where she felt necessary. She even laughed at any jokes that I cracked. That has to be the highlight of my life. Absolute wonderful, really was. That was Johnny Johnson, Britain's last Dambuster. If you'd like to know more about the Dambusters raid, then check out our May issue, which is out now. Also in the magazine, nine leading historians dispel common misconceptions about the Second World War. And we uncover the secrets of Rome's gladiators. Our May issue is on sale now in all good newsagents and in our several digital versions. And now we have a short advertisement break. Listen to a life by subscribing to Oxford Dictionary of National Biography's renowned podcast. The Oxford DMB offers over 58,500 biographies of people who shaped all aspects of British history, worldwide, from the Romans to the 21st century. Each fortnight, you can download a life story of one of Britain's greats. We've Boudicca to Bobby Moore, Mrs Simpson to Mills and Boone, and current favourites include Roald Dahl, Guy Fawkes, George Orwell and J.R.R. Tolkien. Here's an extract from our podcast on Antarctic explorer Captain Robert Scott. Of the many public memorials erected to commemorate Scott after 1913, the statue by Kathleen Scott in Waterloo Place, London, is the best known. Behind the heroic image which it portrays lay a complex and contradictory individual. Of medium height, not physically strong, yet possessed of impressive stamina, Scott was by nature insecure and self-doubting the victim of depressive moods and bouts of indolence. Yet he was ever alert to these disabilities and strove to triumph over them, supported by a deep-rooted sense of justice and a trust in the dispensations of providence. Individual biographies are available to download free of charge by visiting www.oxforddmb.com. Next Wednesday at 9pm, BBC4 will be broadcasting a new documentary from naval historian Sam Willis. Entitled Nelson's Caribbean Hellhole, it will tell the story of the excavation of a mass gravesite in Antigua that dates back to the time when the island was a colony of Britain. So I spoke to Sam about the documentary and the excavations, and I also asked him what involvement Nelson might have had in this story. So we're talking here about a mass gravesite that was discovered in Antigua. How did we find out about this grave? Antigua is one of the most extraordinary places. It is littered with archaeology because it was um, so central to, to the development of the British Empire in the 18th century and very and it was mostly untouched, the archaeology. There was a hurricane and the hurricane forced a great deal of water across a sand dune. The water then collected behind the sand dune and naturally found its way back to the sea and in doing so it cut a river through the sand dune. And in doing so, it washed all of these 
fragments of human bones onto the beach. There were fingers and toes poking out of the sand. Um, a child tried to put a beach umbrella in and couldn't because there was a skull under the sand. Um, they found a, a collection from, I, I don't know, uh, eight or so different different bodies uh, literally just washed up on the beach. Um, so they brought in uh, Dr. Reg Murphy, who's the archaeological expert at um, English Harbour in Antigua, which is where the British used to have um, a, a major naval dockyard. And th what they wanted to do then was to do a more structured um, uh, archaeological investigation to what actually was going on in these sand dunes. So with an international team of archaeologists, we, we, we got there and we did two test pits um, on the top of these sand dunes. These are sand dunes behind Galleon Beach, which is the beach opposite the English Harbour. It's a magnificent Caribbean idyllic stretch of stretch of sand. And um, in the first of these trenches, um, we, we didn't find what we were expecting to at all. We found some, some evidence of um, the pre-Columbian pre um, uh, Indian um, stone tools and shells, which had been carved into tools and some evidence of some, some fires. Um, so we didn't find any bodies at all. But then we opened up another trench and we found eight. And it was, it was a trench a metre and a half by a metre and a half. And um, we ran out of time. We had to stop. There were still bones coming out underneath all of the skeletons that we had removed. So an extraordinary sight. And we, we then tried to explore you know, what, what was going on. This is a, a place that we associate with 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 absolute luxury. It's an, an extraordinary place to go. Um, it's a home of, of rock stars. It's a, it's, a, it's a home of the yachting fraternity. But when Nelson was there at an early part of his career, he described it as an infernal hole. So we were exploring how did these bodies fit into this picture? What were they doing there? And, um, and to try and paint a more detailed picture of, of, of life in the Caribbean, and especially in Antigua in the 18th century. Did you manage to discover who these bodies were? Were they British? Were they local? We do not know exactly who they were. There is an interesting account of a ship which we think they were associated with. We see one of the things about these bodies is that they are not buried in the naval cemetery and they're not buried in the army cemetery. The army cemetery at the top of, of Shirley Heights overlooking English Harbour, the naval cemetery behind the naval hospital just by the naval dockyard it's a separate location and they're not they're not in a cemetery now we know in 1793 so this is the beginning of the french revolutionary war a ship called hms experiment came into antigua and she was so riddled with sickness her crew so ruined by sickness that she had to be helped into the harbor by sailors from another ship um they those sailors that had gone aboard the experiment then brought the disease back onto their, their ship and all of their sailors uh, then contracted it. Um, and it was known as uh, the, the Bulam fever, a fever which, which came from Bulam in Africa. And then, then spread throughout the Caribbean, um, but particularly devastated, and, um, devastated Antigua. So we suspect that these bodies might have been associated with HMS experiment, um, one, the, this ship that came in carrying the illness, or, or perhaps with with other ships um around there because so I, th I think it's likely that the that the bodies that were buried there were already dead when they came in so we haven't got people dying on board the ship and then buried we think we think they might have have, have died and then all been carried off and buried together at once 
So there's still a real mystery attached to these bodies. There is a real mystery. I mean, we think it's very, they're very obviously sailors, some of them, because they've been buried in hammocks. Their shoulders are slumped, their chins are pressed down against their chests, their ankles are very close together in that classic kind of skeletal shape you'd get if you'd been wrapped up in canvas, wrapped up in a canvas hammock. Um, Others, there's also evidence of coffin wood. There was evidence of um, pearl buttons. So perhaps some sort of different status going on. Um, what we're more likely to get the real information out of is, is um, through an chemical analysis of, of their bones and the preliminary findings are suggesting that a lot of them had actually got lead poisoning. Now, we think this is a separate story to the story of the Boulan fever. I don't think they died of lead poisoning, but this whole question of lead poisoning is absolutely fascinating to do with life in, in the West Indies. They are certainly not the only skeletons that have been discovered on Antigua which are showing, showing signs of lead poisoning. And it seems to me that uh, this suffering from lead poisoning was, was very much a part of sailors' and soldiers' lives in the Caribbean at the time. We think that the lead was getting into their bodies through the water systems and perhaps through what's called new rum. Um, so that's a, it's a rum that has, has not um, spent two or three years um, developing. Um, it was a very, very cheap, um, easy to access. And we think that the lead was in that rum and certainly in the water systems because they use lead to line water tanks. There was guttering, all of these things that, that they collected rainwater. Um, and that the sailors were drinking it. So, so not only were they were they suffering from malaria and scurvy, and they were threatened by typhus and yellow fever, but they all had lead poisoning. Uh, they must have felt appalling all the time. So, like you said, it's such a different image from that of the modern paradise. Yes, I mean, particularly on, on this beach. What was interesting is that when we said to, to some of the locals, you know, are you surprised that we found loads of bodies on this beach? No, they weren't surprised at all. There, there are local stories associated of ghosts on that beach, um, which was one of the, one of the most um, extraordinary things to have discovered. So they, they weren't, weren't surprised at all. And none of the locals go there. They all went, went, go, go to a beach around the corner. So um, it was full, it's full of, full of tourists burning themselves pink uh, with, with lying essentially on a, on a gravesite, which apparently the locals seem to know about. And you mentioned Nelson before. Would, this have, would these bodies have been put in there around the time Nelson was involved with the island? Very possibly. Um, so we either think it was um, from this Boulam fever, this, this strange fever that, that came, came in from Africa in the 1790s, but equally, um, we, 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 they could be there from the 1780s, which is when Nelson um, was, was, was in Antigua. Um, it's a really interesting part of his career that most people associate Nelson with you know, fighting, fighting the forces of Napoleon in the Mediterranean and, and, and in the Atlantic around, around Gibraltar and, and Trafalgar. But, but an early significant and very formative part of his career was spent in the Caribbean and it was spent in Antigua. And it's where he met his first wife, um, uh, Francis Nisbet. So he, he was there in the 1780s and there's uh, the, the, the gap between the 80s and the 90s, I think is, is, is too small for us to be able to say what, what period these guys came from. Um, what we have done though, is looked at the muster books of HMS experiment uh, up in Kew in the National Archives. And um, they very much bring this, this story of, of the ship being struck by disease to life, um, where you see about 60% of the crew dying in two weeks. So to have so many bodies buried on the beach 
from a period around which we know that the experiment and, and the whole British um, squadron there was suffering from this disease. It, it does seem to make sense. It does seem to t- tick a lot of the boxes. And um, th- th- that muster book gives us names of the names of the dead. And interestingly, because the, the squadron was then so bad, poorly manned, the ships had to go back out to sea and then sail around the harbour to press sailors. And they sailed all the way down to Barbados to press more sailors. So the press gang was very much associated with 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 this death i mean people often i think associate the press gang with the start of wars generating huge numbers of men to go and fill all these ships but it's intricately linked in the caribbean to death sailors aboard died the navy had to go out and find more sailors and press gang them and very interestingly many of those sailors who were pressed ran away within weeks of joining the experiment. So they get on the experiment, they realise that half the crew is dead, everyone else looks terrible, and they, I'm not going to stay here, and off they go. Um, so the muster books show them as being being pressed in Barbados or St John's in Antigua, and then two weeks later there's a mark for R, which means that they've run. And so perhaps it's not such a surprise that Nelson has such negative views about the place if there was all this illness and sailors running away and things like that. No, not at all. I mean, also, if you go to um, uh, English Harbour now, it's it's full of these of mega yachts, um, and it's 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 very sort of a manicured place. It's very much presented for the for the public as as, as an important part of antique and heritage. But it's shiny, it's clean, it's it's completely different to what it used to have been. It was an industrial dockyard. It was an industrial centre. They were they were burning sulphur to clean the ships. It would have. St- there were furnaces for, for making anchors and, and chains. And you've also got, got huge numbers of ships there. You know, the biggest ships have got 800 or 1,000 men on and all of their sewage is just going straight into the harbour. So now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's crystal clear waters, but it would have been a, an open sewer, essentially, the 18th century. It's very still. It's, um, it has mountains that surround it. It's like being in the, being in the, the, the centre of a volcano. You, you don't get the refreshing tropical breezes that you do up on the hills in Antigua. It's a still dead hot place. And now they've still got the swamps and they've still got the mosquitoes, but they don't carry malaria. But it was, it was, you can really imagine it being fetid and being hot. While he was there, Nelson regularly had buckets of seawater poured over his head in the morning to try and make himself feel better and cool down. What were all these British sailors doing in Antigua? Was it was it the slave trade? Was it sugar that brought them there? It was sugar. I mean, particularly when Nelson was there, he he was there to enforce the Navigation Acts, which were which were acts that, that insisted that British goods were only carried and traded by British crews in British ships, uh, and the Americans, in particular, um, were outraged by this because they 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 wanted to trade between the British sugar islands and, and America. Sugar. Antigua is a sugar island. It was it was a sugar island, and as was Barbados. They're flat. They're good for growing sugar. They're not they're not mountainous islands like Dominique, like Saint Lucia. It's, you know, all of these these Caribbean islands are different. But Antigua and Barbados, they're flat. They're in good positions, and they're brilliant for growing sugar. And sugar is what made the economy go round. It's, it's easy to to just think of it in very purely economic terms, but to protect that sugar trade. The government was sending thousands and thousands of sailors out to the Caribbean. A lot of them were dying and they just kept kept on sending more sailors and they kept on dying. And so they kept on sending more. And I think that's um that's a very shocking approach to human life, um, which which raises so many questions for us now. What were they doing? Why were they doing it? What was the reaction? What, what, what How did they react when they found out that half a crew of HMS experiment died? I mean, what was the the reaction of the politicians did they pause and think about it or do they just send off another 500 men 
So I think there's a there's a, there's, a, there's a fascinating story linked to the sugar trade that hasn't really been explored properly. But but hopefully, by doing this archaeology in Antigua, we can we can really open up open up questions like this to investigation. And I suppose um, the programmes as well will bring it to a much wider audience. Yes, um, very much so. And there's an extraordinary amount of archaeology. One of my favourite places in Antigua that really, really needs needs looking looking after. It need, it needs recording. It needs sorting out. Is this this thing called the water catchment? There, there are no rivers, large rivers or lakes on Antigua. So all of the water, all of the fresh water, had to be collected from the sky. It rains, and they built these huge water catchments. They're, they're kind of like empty, flat swimming pools that all drained all the water down into into big water tanks. Now the sailors who were going there to collect water carved their names into the walls of the water catchment behind the naval dockyard and so you've got names of 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 these men the year that they were there the name of their ship so hms roebuck 1745 um and their their names and um it's extraordinary seeing the variety of the handwriting it's extraordinary seeing how much these men wanted to say that we we have been here so if this program not only raises the, the question of what was going on in the the Royal Navy in Antigua, hopefully it will really help promote Antiguan archaeology. It'll get more people involved. It'll allow us to understand the the, the sources for archaeology we've got there and to record them and to, and to protect them for future generations. That was Sam Willis. Nelson's Caribbean Hellhole will be showing on BBC4 next Wednesday at 9pm. And that is almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think on email, podcast at historyextra.com, or on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra, and we're on facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, you can keep up with all our latest blogs, quizzes, galleries, and plenty more on our website, which is historyextra.com. Just before we go, I'd like to give you a quick heads up about a couple of lectures we're running in the next few months. On Wednesday the 8th of May at Apsley House in London, Simon Thurley will explore the history of heritage protection in Britain, to be followed by a drinks reception and a special exhibition viewing at Wellington Arch. Then on the 8th of July, at the British Academy, also in London, Anthony Beaver and Roger Morehouse will be discussing some of the latest ideas about the Second World War. The details of both events and for tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures. Next week, we'll be discussing the history of Britain's royals with Lucy Worsley and revisiting Europe in 1913. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.